I don't know if you noticed it, but I just said upchuck. Uh, we're really struggling to get out of the gutter this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's so warm and comfortable down there, though. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 26 of the Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Hey everybody. Lucas Rubelke. Holler. John Papa. With the mute button. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A uh, quick reminder to go check out JS Remote Conf. It's an online conference for JavaScript. Uh, we also have a special guest. Uh, once again, we have Ward Bell on the call. Hello, everyone. And we have to mention our missing panelist and why he's missing. Go ahead. Aaron Frost is missing today because he's having a baby. So congratulations to Aaron and his wife. Well, his wife's having a baby, let's be clear. But congratulations to him and his wife. And we hope that everything goes well in there for them. Go team Aaron. Congrats. <laughs> the little icicle will be the new baby. That's right. I love it. Icicle. I always have my programmer friends say, congratulations on your recent fork. Anyway, so this week we're going to be talking about testing tools. We're kind of following up last week's episode. So first off, we kind of wanted to talk about some of the barriers that we have to testing, you know, some of the problems that we have to solve with these tools. I'm going to kind of time box it to, you know, maybe three to five minutes just because I really want to dig into the tools. But, you know, there are some things that just make it so that it's not as easy or natural to test. So one of the things I'm just going to start out with that makes it hard for me to test sometimes is just that the tests run long. I, I don't run the tests all the time if they take more than a couple minutes to run. But that implies you actually have some. Yes. Because they can't run long if you don't have any, which is what I usually see. Unless you uh -huh. consider zero time to be long. Yeah. God, as I look out at it, the first thing I notice is that testing is just not part of people's, what they think of as doing as, pro, as programming. It's just they don't have any, any experience with it at all. And so it's just another thing that they have to learn. And the second thing then is that they don't even know how to get budget for it because they don't know how to argue for it. So I, I think there's a lot of social dimension before you even get to the technical impediments. Does that ring true to you, Lucas? That is indeed uh, the case. I think it's it's a mindset that, you know, it's a hard time equivocating value to, to writing tests. It's, it's a mindset shift that, you know, not only do you have to champion it and, and really believe in it, but you have to be prepared to go to the stakeholders and say, in conjunction with actually doing the work, we need to actually allocate time for writing tests, which ultimately in the long run saves time. But I think people are uncomfortable making that case to the stakeholders. Yeah, yeah. and usually somebody, the boss says, you know what, it, you can't you can't take that long. And then you look at it and say, well, what the heck can I jettison here? And people who don't have a lot of testing experience are pretty quick to throw the tests overboard. And I've even seen examples where clients have come to me and say, we've already written this code. How about we just hire you to come in and write test? 
And I yeah. think that, you know, writing code without e at least a testing mindset really creates kind of some extraneous and superfluous mechanisms in your code that if, if you're testing, is it really encourages you to, to keep your code lean and very specific to what you're doing to satisfy your test. And so even I think people have this like, we'll write the code and then we'll write the test, which, you know, really not only incurs the time to write the test, but to actually refactor the code that you've actually written. And I don't think I should talk about it as if there were those people were out there somewhere. I got to tell you that I have personally participated in throwing the tests overboard when, it, <laughs> when trying to set up a kind of deal with, a, you know, with, with scheduling with a, uh, a customer and they tell me that they don't want to pay for tests. I surrender immediately. So I'm as much to blame as anybody. But, well, but I, these, these are big, these are things that happen. I, I have people basically say, well, I'm so good at testing that it doesn't take any more time for me to write the tests, and I don't believe them. And so it is. It's it's overhead up front, but, you know, you get the trade-off in maintainability down the road. And so it's not something that, you know, you can definitely argue that um, has immediate value. It's it's that, you know, that long-term, it's going to save you money when the, when the next guy has to come in and write this, and, you know, then he's going to know he broke something when he broke something. So I'm trying to come up with a scheme to make it more palatable and which works more along the lines of, you know, I'm going to steer clear of trying to do um, code coverage and all that stuff. But, you know, when I create a new thing, I'm going to at least create the test harness for it and see that I can spin that component up under a test. That's the price of admission for getting that feature. Okay, boss. I'm not going to spend a lot of time writing test after test of it, but I'm going to get it in a position so that when we have, when something goes wrong, we can go to step two, which is, you know, create the test that confirms the bug and then fix it uh, so that the tests prove their value as we do things. So that's my pitch. And uh, see how uh, I think that I can move that one. So, Joe, I mean, somehow you're able to convey in a way that I can't, how important this is, and get people to buy in to uh, making tests a part of the development experience. What do you do? You know, my biggest thing has always been you just got to drink the Kool-Aid. It's so hard to convince people up front. And even if you convince them intellectually, it still doesn't come down to action. By far, the best way that I've convinced people to test is by having them pair with me for several days to a week. And we do completely test-driven development by the end. Everybody that I've paired with has been like convinced and sold, and they've become full-blown test-driven developers. Well, uh, since I can't pair with the guy who writes the check, I have to come up with other strategies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, and, and that's why I'm trying to figure out a way to sneak it into the, um, you know, into the planning in such a, and not try and go um, nuts with how much testing I'm going to do. Because, like Chuck said, you can't say that it has zero cost. So, how can I get the test as part of the budget for the feature, and not surrender on it, not make it so dominant in in the cost of developing that feature, uh, so that I at least have a test bed waiting for me when I need to circle back? Because the really hard thing. Is when, when you have to go back and you've got nothing and the pressure's on and then you don't do it either. Yeah, when it comes to that kind of justification, I think it's much like safety. You never make it a separate line item. So this somebody says, yeah. all right, go ahead and do this, but don't worry about harnesses and making sure that people don't die while building this building, right? 
Right. It's it's just it's part of the cost of building a feature, and so estimates include the costs of tests, that's, and you never tell right. anybody different. That's I what think I that's do. Right. The other yeah. thing, if I, wanted, I could jump in here, are you, are no, you doing you contracts? Are you doing? Uh, are you a full time employee somewhere? Because um, my company, IdeaBlade, we're a software consulting company. Right. We're always doing it for somebody else. Now, internally, we don't have any problem at all for our, our uh, Breeze product and our DevForce product because we understand what it takes, and it's just part of developing the product, and we don't have to justify it to anyone. But when, you, when you're asking somebody for money and time, and they're sitting there tapping their fingers, because they only call you when they're running out of time, uh-huh. uh, it's really tough. And you have to, and really, you're going to have to say, no, you know what? I mean, how do you do this? You say, you know, that feature you want, you can't have it because I got to use that time to put into the testing of the feature you do want. So you got to prioritize. That's a tough conversation. Yeah. See, I, I, I do what Joe says and I'm, I, I'm a contractor. So the other thing that I do though is I typically try not to bill by the hour. So I'll either do weekly billing or I'll do like a fixed bid and then I just do the tests because if you're not talking about how much time, it's a different conversation. And so then they don't care because they're just going to pay for you to do it instead of paying for you to spend time to do it. Anyway. So Lucas, anyway, what, what were you going to jump in with? So I do something kind of in the middle that's worked well for me. And that is I kind of treat at least like the test harness is a bit of a value add. And so I'm really helping myself by setting up at least a foundation to write test. But what has happened is I said, I'm going to do these features, but it's kind of a value-added feature. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, lay, you know, a basic test harness and, you know, set up, you know, some fundamental test that your developers can then take and run with. Or, you know, if we continue this engagement, it's already there. And so, you know, investing, you know, maybe just like an hour or, or two into setting that up is ultimately is you're setting – you know, you're providing value to the project, but you're setting up, you know, developers to, to pick it up and you're encouraging them to write tests by making it easy for you. As well as, you know, if the engagement continues, then you already have that in place. And for me personally, I found that, you know, kind of the ceremony of getting up and running with tests is oftentimes the greatest barrier is, you know, how do you get the environment set up? And then how do you essentially set up your unit under test? to to get it to actually run and spin up in the environment. And so by just taking that initial step and making it easy for developers to pick up, I found that the clients really appreciate that. And it just is kind of conducive for, you know, continuing, you know, work down the road. So I'm going to push the segue button because I said three to five minutes and we talked about it for 10. So what, what do your test harness look, harnesses look like, guys? When you set the well, stuff up, what do you do? What do you yeah, What yeah. tools are you using? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could start by talking about the frameworks within which we write the tests, because there are some choices there when you're writing JavaScript tests. Mm-hmm. I yeah, start. You have, you have to write code first, right? And then after that, you got to worry about how do you run it, because those are two very separate problems. Right. Unless you're Joe. <laughs> yep. Joe, Joe just writes tests. He doesn't write any code. He just breathes, <laughs> breathes on the code, and it sprouts tests spontaneously. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, so assuming we're talking about JavaScript here, historically, wh- where we started was with QUnit. jQuery had QUnit tests, and it seemed like everybody was using QUnit at the time. So we wrote Breeze with QUnit tests, lots of them. And that was great. And I probably wouldn't have departed from it until uh, I started writing Angular, and where all the tests were written in Jasmine. 
And now uh, I said, uh, you know, that encounter, I said, wow. You know, I, at first I was, because I would just look at them intellectually, right? And I said, hey, you know what? I'm not buying into this BDD style versus um, just uh, writing asserts and stuff. Because I can write, I can write the test names in a readable way. You know what? What is that about? So that did not sell me the fact that it had some association with BDD, who's which I can no longer. What does BDD stand for? Behavior Driven Development. Thank you, thank you. You can see uh, the the acronyms stick. The meaning doesn't. I thought it was big dirty dudes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's my other oh podcast. My. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh my. <laughs> But so what I've discovered, though, that there were substantive differences between Jasmine and Q unit, then that was a real wake up call. And for me, uh, I'll just tell you what mine is and then somebody else can jump in. Um, the biggest thing by far was the nested describe. And you say to yourself, you got to be kidding, Ward. But no, in QUnit, you have this wacky thing called a module uh, where you sort of separate, you break your collections of tests by uh, using this module statement. But you can't have depth in it. You can't have nesting. And what I actually found as I was writing tests is that I would have some sort of, you know, like if I'm trying to test a component, I'd have some sort of global setup, right? And then I wanted to go down a particular path and explore part of the path of what that component can do. And that meant that I'd have some more setup associated with that. And then I want to come back and I want to go down another path, a different path with that component. And that has its own setup. But no, 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 you can't do that in QUnit. So you end up with these massive amounts of setup each time or you start creating setup that spans multiple paths. And so you're only using some of it for some. And, so, and then you're using the other parts of the setup for the other. And so what you end up with is this big chunks of setup, some of which you're using and some of which you're not. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about one of the things that's most important in making tests efficient and keeping them from being brittle, and that's to have as little setup as you can possibly have for the test you're trying to do. So you can see how having massive amounts of setup to cover all the different paths I want gets in the way of having nice, short, crisp tests. Whereas with these nested describes, I could really just sort of focus on Oh, as I was taking a step down a particular path that I'm trying to test, I could create only the setup that was necessary to pursue that line of inquiry. And that made my test so much more rational, so much more crisp, and therefore less vulnerable to the kinds of changes that might occur elsewhere that can break your tests. That was such a huge difference that I would say the nested describes turned made the single biggest difference for me in choosing one framework over another and now i'll shut up who else has an opinion so i'm kind of interested ward you have a background in .NET, right yes i do were you testing in .NET before you started testing on the front end yes so what tools were you using to test in .NET? what frameworks Mostly, God, you know what? I can hardly remember how to even write C Sharp anymore. That's how terrible it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I was using the, you know, the X unit star, X you know, standard. Uh, in other words, I, I, I think I was using Microsoft Test. Yeah. Okay. So I had a similar experience. So when I came from X unit, I chose Q unit because it was similar. And then again, I found Jasmine and found the nested describes and like, oh, I love this. And right. then somebody showed me Mocha. And said, hey, with Chai, you can actually kind of like pick from a, a plethora of syntaxes. And I like that even better. So what, what's the difference with Mocha and Chai? What It kind of gives you, you can actually choose either the Q unit style 
or you can do the typical, the Jasmine style, and there are even some others that are just minor variations on that, but mostly it's the choice between those two. So, so let me back up a little bit to help people. Jasmine is kind of like you get a suite of, you get the, the runner, you get the runner and, and the thing that, the, you know, the describes and the before and the after. Then you get an assertion library. That's where you say, or in the tests. So you say, you, you it, it prescribes exactly how you'll code the assertion that something is true, false, equal, whatever it is. All right. And then you also get a built in uh, mocking library. So all of those things come together in a single package in Jasmine. And that's great. You install Jasmine. You got it. But if you want some variation, you kind of depart from the scheme. Mocha is like a, a cafeteria plan. It, it, it says, Hey, we got a test runner for you. We have before, before each, after, after each, it. And after that, you decide what kinds of assertions, uh, libraries you want to use and you decide what kind of mocking library you use and go out there and have fun and pick them. And which compels you as a mocha, uh, as somebody who decides that they like mocha, it compels you to go out there and make some choices. One of which is chai for the assertions. And for the mocking, it would compel you to go out and get something. And the one I got is sign on. So as you move, you got the Q unit thing that we were talking about. Then there's this giant divide in the whole paradigm in which you write things as you move from Mocha to Jasmine and Mocha, both of which I think are in the same relative camp in terms of the style of tests that you write. But they divide on whether you get, you say, I want the Jasmine suite and I, that's what I get, or whether you want the uh, cafeteria plan, which is kind of Mocha. That's kind of the big picture for me. Would anybody disagree or qualify that? I totally dis- I totally agree, and I would put a little bit of an opinion here that I much prefer Sinon's mocking library over the built-in one in Jasmine, which is kind of one of the reasons I like Mocha. Even though you can totally use Sinon's mocking with Jasmine, and I did when it was all when I was doing my, in my Jasmine phase, I used Sinon rather than Jasmine's own mocking. Yeah, and yeah. Ward, if you remember, when we were doing, you and I explored this a little bit together, when we were doing the Jasmine stuff with stubbing and mocking, and then we pulled in the sign-on stuff, we ran them side by side, and we found that sign-on actually gave us better, more concise, and clear information when there were problems as well. Yes. So that's one of the reasons we switched over to sign-on, even when using Jasmine. Exactly. Uh, and then I would go back and forth because I was trying to, re- you know, uh, anyway. But yes, that was it. Now, oh, by the way, there was a period of time there when Jasmine was not very supportive of uh, async. It was really right. kind of clunky, and I think that drove a lot of people to Mocha. Yes. But that's no longer a reason to choose Mocha over Jasmine because Jasmine has good async support now, too. And and by the way, if you if folks out there in the audience, if you're writing uh, JavaScript code, you're writing asynchronous code. Even if you don't go async, even if you don't make a call to a server or something like that, it's still structured async, and you've got to be prepared to write asynchronous tests. And so it's critical that your library provide easy support for whatever mocking framework you pick has to provide easy support for writing asynchronous style tests. That all makes sense as far as like writing. Mostly I use those kinds of frameworks for uh, my unit tests, right? So, you know, smaller components, you know, maybe that have to go and, and talk to something else manage some data, stuff like that, you know, and, and so I'm I'm testing just some small piece of my code. One thing that I've run into with Jasmine in particular is that Jasmine, at least by default, likes to run in the browser. And when I'm running my stuff, I like to run it on the command line and then just set up some kind of automatic runner so that when I change something, it goes, okay, you change something, I'm going to run the test, I'm going to tell you if everything's still good. Is there a way to do that with my Angular tests? 
Uh, I never thought of it as a as a browser only thing, and Joe did a whole nice little course on running it with Karma. Right. Yeah. So absolutely, Karma is the right tool there to answer that because it just pulls the even though it's running it still in an actual browser, it's pulling it and giving you the in, out, output on the command line. So does it open it up? Can, does it open up it's the a browser? Browser too. Oh, yeah, it's it's headless. Headless. Okay. Well, you can choose, right? With Karma, you can decide if you want to run it in Chrome. You can run and pick all the browsers, or you can choose to use it in uh, PhantomJS, which is a headless browser. Okay. So Karma gives you that option. You tell Karma how you want to run, what browsers you want to run the tests in. So you can run, it, run them and make sure that your code runs in IE as well as Chrome and Firefox. And, and then, of course, in, if you want to run them fast, PhantomJS is going to be the, probably your fastest choice. Although, actually... Chrome with uh, Karma is super, super, super fast. So you just say... We should, we should mention that. We mentioned Karma, and we should sort of just, for those who don't know, uh, how would you describe it? Is it a testing engine or something like that? Because Yeah, it's weird. But what it's it's capable of doing, aside from automating your the way in which you run your tests, because it ties into Node and all, is that it can simultaneously run your tests in a great number of browsers, so that they're all firing at once as it, as they're plowing through the tests. They're they're plowing through them in all the different browsers, and that can be helpful to you if you're trying to assure yourself that it will run in all those environments. I think I spend very little time doing that myself because of the nature of the stuff I'm working on. So I've usually just pared it down to the fastest thing, which is Phantom, because there's nothing to actually show, or Chrome. But you know, for me, it's almost always just running silently in Phantom off to the side. Yeah. So a little bit of history. When Jasmine uh, QUnit first came out, you would just open them up in a browser window and then either manually hit refresh, or you could always hook up, uh, what's that little plug-in that, is auto refresh is that the name of the plugin? There are a couple of them for Chrome and yeah. Firefox. So you know, you just pick your poison. You took that up, and then along came Karma, built by the Angular team, where they said, "Hey, why not have a nice little command line tool that will just automatically run this sort of stuff for you?" And it's a Node utility. It opens up the browsers for you, runs the tests in the browsers, and then grabs the output on the console and shows it to you in the console and just kind of lets you know, hey, you had so many tests run and this many passed, this many didn't pass. So it kind of takes a, a step higher level. And again, for me, like Ward, most of the time I'm only testing in one browser because I'm not too worried about cross-browser compatibility. Not that my code won't run in multiple browsers, but the nature of what I'm testing is not likely to break in another browser. It's pretty straightforward ES5. I'm not doing weird CSS, trying to test weird CSS stuff, which is hard with unit tests anyway. So most of the time I just run it in a single browser. And during development and during DDD, your, your, your focus is on, am I making sense? Am, is, not, not, is this going to run all, across all the browsers? That's kind of a different phase of quality assurance. Yeah, and typically with that I'm using something like uh, WebDriver or Selenium, I guess, is what you know, whatever you want to call it, or something like that, which is it's kind of what Protractor and some of the other tools are based on right. to, to do that kind of stuff. So it's, okay, you know, fire up a browser and then, you know, simulate the clicks and stuff. So, Charles, earlier you said something about, you know, that unit tests. And I, I'm not sure that we have agreement on what you meant by unit tests versus something else. Because I actually, you know, by my definition, I, I would say that I write relatively few. Well, no, I, you know, I, I don't want to say I write relatively few unit tests, but I write an awful lot of what I would call integration tests. So what did you mean when you said unit test? So most of the time when I'm talking about unit tests, yeah, I'm kind of including my integration tests in there. But mostly it's, you know, if there's some logic that's encapsulated in 
say, a controller or a model. Usually it's the models or the services in Angular. You know, so it goes, it has a job, it does a particular thing, and so I test that it does that particular thing and does it right. And so, you know, if it's if it's go fetch data, then I'm probably going to be mocking something out or have some service running off somewhere that it can actually go to to get the information, you know, and then the unit test is, you know, this little piece does what I thought it did. Okay. Uh-huh. So I summarize that. It's not original to me, but a pure unit test for me is a test of a component in which every one of its dependencies is faked in some way, test double, some sort. In a minute, you're not using uh, a test double for one of its dependencies, then you're into some degree of integration test, and therefore it's a spectrum. So at the pure end, they're all faked, and at the full integration end, you're go- you're actually using the real thing all the way to the back end, and uh, you know you might even go yeah. right to it to the server. And particularly with a framework, like, you know, with a library like Breeze, which is, if I'm testing Breeze um, as I'm developing it. I have to actually know uh, for a lot of the tests, not all of them by any means, but a f- certain significant number of them, I have to know that it ac- actually integrate, it, it, it interacts with the server, a real server, in the way I think it did. So I'll write integration tests that even cross processes and go all mm-hmm. the way to a real server. Because I have to, because what I'm testing is, does this thing work? I mean, that's really what we're after, right? Does it work? And if I'm faking, for example, the HTTP response, that's great and all, and I can explore a lot of things with that approach, but I don't have the confidence that I'm, because my framework is supposed to talk to a server, I don't have the confidence that it's actually uh, working with a real server. So I write tests that tend more towards, you know, for my stuff, that tend more towards integration. Whereas if I'm writing an application, which I think is most of our audience, then I pull it back and I try not to make um, cross-process uh, server calls. I try and have relatively few of them do that. So, but I'm always along that whole spectrum there. I'm I'm not so much writing what I would call pure unit tests in which I fake absolutely every single dependency. I have to say, on the front end, I'm mostly there with you. I mean, and so I, I usually kind of think of my unit tests as including those integration tests that hit some back end somewhere. Um, in a lot of cases, it's a lot easier to set that up than to actually go figure out how to mock out the HTTP response and get all of the right stuff in the right place so that my fake acts like that response in the ways that I care about. Right. The downside is, of course, that you now, in order to run your test, you have to spin up a server mm-hmm. and you're going to pay a performance price. So the more tests you have, the slower it runs. So. So you have to find that that balance and decide what subset of those tests are appropriate during development during a you know where in which you're going to be running those tests continuously. And I imagine a TDD guy, hey Joe, um, <laughs> would have a have a position on how to on what tests to run and what tests not to run. My biggest goal has always been to run 100% of my unit tests 100% of the time. But it does, you know, when you have like when we had 100,000 lines of code over in Domo, it kind of ended up being a problem. And so what was nice was WebStorm allowed you to create those little sessions where you just ran a subset of your tests, and then you just I just run the full set right before check-in. And then I could pick, oh, just tests that are around what I'm actually working on right at the moment and be a little strategic that way. But I know that with uh, server-side languages, it was easier to run the entire suite of tests, but client-side... Things are just a little bit slower. So when you're talking about 10,000 or 15,000 tests, oftentimes that's 
especially if you're going to do TDD, where you want to be able to change code, glance over and see within a second whether or not what you did broke anything, and then look back, well, that's not going to be feasible. So usually it's just the tests right around the code that I'm working on. Do you, um, one of the features of both Jasmine and Mocha that I use when I'm doing that kind of thing where I'm just exploring a particular area is that you can say, I know I have a 10,000 test, but I'm going to do describe dot only here, right? Yeah. And so I've done that before. The one thing I absolutely have to recommend that you pair with that is a check in gate rule that says that if you have any dot onlys in your test that it fails your check in (laughs) or another test that will fail that is required for check-in because the worst thing in the world is checking in that dot only and then yeah. somebody else check gets latest and all of a sudden they're not only testing one thing and trying to track you, them down is pain so you know what I, I i also think is a pain in the butt is sometimes i want to test and only on a couple things and i haven't found a good way of doing that yet where you actually say this test i want to run and i want to run that test too and it might be in different describes or in different files even so and webstorm lets you that. create webstorm lets you create sessions it does it with Jasmine, right? I think you can tell it, I only want to run these sets of tests. Jasmine, you can do it. Mocha, you can't. And that's one of the things that Jasmine's better at. Yeah. So that's a really nice feature. I, yeah, I really miss that. Uh, yeah, the I do a lot of, we do a lot of skipping on tests too. One thing I like about these frameworks is when you skip them, they at least highlight them as, you know, these are pending and these are, not, these are being skipped. Uh, because again, you don't want that in the CI process, but there are valid times where you want to skip them for the time being. Right. Mm-hmm. That's another thing is using a tool where you actually just say, hey, for right now, I want to do these, but it's not, it's like, you know, session information that doesn't, it's not in any file that gets checked in. So you never have to worry about accidentally checking in the fact that we're only testing these tests. That's what's another amazing thing of pairing up WebStorm and Jasmine. Right. And, uh, and if you were doing it in the browser, you can do that with filters, which is what I often do. Yes. Uh, yes. So I do buy that. That gets into the other thing about whether, when are you using Carmen and when are you using the browser as a test runner? So, um, we could talk about that at, at an appropriate t- moment, but I, I'm, I'm wondering, does somebody else have something wanted to talk about first? Only that people need to improve the testing frameworks out there so that we, it's easier to do these types of things. Well, a lot of this, kind of- a lot of this is, is pretty young. I mean, the, the concepts have, have been around for a while, but. Yeah, you know, but this was a problem like four years ago. Yeah. You know, I knew about this problem four years ago because maybe uh, it's my fault for not contributing to Mocha. Yeah, it's all it's all Joe's fault. I, I like this game. <laughs> but, I mean, it's how we work, right? We zoom in, we focus, and now we want really fast tests right around the air. We focus. We're not interested in the other 10,000 tests that are running off of the side, but we're well, we're terrified that we might check that lock that in and check it in. So you have to have those pre-checks. By the way, Joe, you should paste that code, uh, you know, that check-in uh, blocker uh, so people can get a hold of it because that sounds like good stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, that also depends on, like, what you're using. Like, we did it and if you put it in, it's it's so specific to your environment. We had it in our CI system. It wasn't actually a, a Git gate, but I know that you can do it with Git filters as well, right? Yep. Right. I thought that's what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I th- we were doing it. We was a CI thing. I think we had some custom grunt task that ran and looked for dot only in a certain subdirectory, and then it would throw an error. All right. Well, we'll get John Papa to write one of those then. Good job, John. Go, John. Go. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> So are there times, I'm really a command line person, and Ward, you brought this up, but are there times when you want to run it in the browser? Well, I, I do a lot. <laughs> yes mean, and we, no. 
Yes and no. Yeah. I, I think th I think there's never a time. I'm going to jump over you at work because I think there's do never it. a time where you want to do one or the other. There are plenty of times where terminal makes a ton of sense. You're just getting going. You just want to run things and kind of want it out of the way, uh, or if you want to run a CI process. But then, to me, when I switch to the browser, is when I'm doing some testing and I want to continually look at the output. I know there's going to be an error. I know these tests are really going to have an issue. I want to see what's happening. The browser is such a much easier place to run them and see the output. Uh, so for me, if I want kind of the test to be out of the way and only notify me something breaks, to me it's terminal, which is most of my mode. And then I switch to browser whenever I need to dive into what exactly is going on. Yeah, I'm using them to debug my test because, you know, as I'm writing my test, it's probably more likely that my test is messed up than that my code is messed up. Yeah, and you can just debug it in the browser tools, which makes it so much easier. Mm -hmm. Pro tip. <laughs> We're kind of yeah, getting... I see people trying to use Node Inspector a lot to do these testing, debugging, and terminal. And while you can do that stuff, you don't really need to. I think just the browser is there. Let's use it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it has a lot to do with whether also, you know, there are people who are visual a lot more than there are CLI type people. And I don't know where I fit on that spectrum. Sometimes I really like just being able to let my keys do the walking and it's all very fast and there's no doubt about it. But there are other times. And maybe it's because I'm more of a manager these days. Uh, I just need that mouse. <laughs> I'm just, uh, whether this is true confessions time. You know, I'm feeling really embarrassed now. <laughs> you're not a real programmer these days unless you're like heads down and do everything in, in the CLI. Yeah. Well, I use Emacs anyway. So saying you need the mouse is blasphemy. There you go. There you go. And I'll bet you do everything black on black. So you, cause you can see it then. <laughs> That's right. And then I use my X-ray vision superpowers. Yeah, let's get to the real big question here. Who uses a dark-themed editor versus a light theme? <laughs> Dark theme. <laughs> Does it matter? Of course you do. You could, yeah, yeah. That's that's Ward's biggest issue with me. We'd be much better friends if I used a light theme because he yells at me every time I bring up my dark theme. I can't see the damn thing. And you know what? Go ahead. I, I love this. I go to a conference and somebody does the whole thing in black on the big screen in front of a big audience with red type on it. Good luck with that. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> Have you ever thought that maybe nobody wants to actually see what you're, you know, be able to have them read what's up on the screen? Maybe that's part of the strategy. It's just look at me, right? Because if they can't see the screen, they might as well just look at me, which actually it, it, I think is now a good idea. Which is exactly, isn't, you know, those people who go to conferences and wear those like Elvis suits and crazy who hats and sunglasses. I can't know anybody who does stuff like that. Who Sna would do that? Snakeskin boots. Yeah. yeah. Crazy <laughs> man, that's me. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're deviating a little bit. I want to talk briefly about acceptance tests, and then we've got to get to the picks. I wish I had something to say about acceptance tests. So this is something that I have done in the past, and mostly I usually do it with whatever I'm comfortable with, with something like Selenium WebDriver or PhantomJS. Both of them have Ruby wrappers on them, and so I can just use my regular testing system to you know hook into them and, and test drive the application. But I only really do it on the kind of the the main paths, right? The things that are the money makers. It's I don't acceptance test the entire application because the barrier is a little higher to writing the tests, and they're a little bit more brittle because if you change the interface, then you break the tests. Um, and the other thing is is that they just take a lot longer to run, and so I'm usually only running them in CI, or if I know that I've made major changes to one of those happy paths. Or one of those, you know, main workflows. And so, so that's kind of the approach. 
So usually I only have two or three kind of longer scripts that run through a workflow and, and make sure that those all work. But then you, you run it against the entire app front to back, you know, database to Angular JS. Right. So in the Angular world, the, the tool of choice uh, for these end to end tests is Protractor. And that's, that's been on my list to learn for some time. But I think I may be like many people who have tried the kind of thing you're describing there periodically over the years and never been able to make it work successfully or pay off. And, but I, I, you know, so I've been burned at the stove as it were, and I'm afraid to go back, but I get this feeling that the story may be different with Protractor. So A, I think you guys got to do a show on Protractor with Julie, but B, I'm wondering if any of you guys have actually dipped your toe in that water. In the Protractor water? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have done some protractor work, uh, although not nearly as much as I have in the, the unit testing work on this. And my results have been mixed. And honestly, I'm a Mocha guy these days, but I've found that Jasmine just works tremendously better with protractor uh, for whatever reasons, just less issues. And I even had a chat with Julie one time offline, and she even said, yeah, she's done more with Jasmine as well. I'm not sure what the reasons for it are, but less issues popped up. What are you looking to hear about protractor? For me, if I had my choice, I want to know, how do you make that easy? How do you make good decisions about what to do in it and what not to do in it so that I can begin to cost justify trying to, you know, bringing that to bear? I realize that there should be a um, a sellable cost benefit in it in as much as people are hiring QA teams and QA teams are sitting there, you know, half the time playing like monkeys over the the keyboard. And I'd rather have uh, automation do that. And we have like lots of samples and every time we change thing, we got to run them and somebody has to sit there like a human being and click the keys and uh, a smoke test. If it was cheap enough to run and uh, build some smoke tests in uh, with an EDE tool and uh, end tool, I think it would pay off and I could convince myself and my customers to make that investment. Uh, but there's a little hill to climb and I just want to know that a, um, when I climb the hill, it's worth it and b that the hill isn't as high as it looks. So that's kind of what my personal interest would be. Um, now, Lucas, you had tried this? Yes. Yeah, so I've done some Protractor. Um, this was about a year ago, and um, they had just changed the syntax to be uh, quite a bit easier. And this is how I see it. So this is just my opinion, is I think as it is now, and I know it's getting better that you know Julie's working very hard on, on this tool, is that I think it's good for doing kind of some, and I say this loosely, kind of some quick test on some of the, like the critical paths. And so what, how I see it is, you know, kind of your dev team, you know, kind of just double checking everything before they send it out to, to somebody in QA. Mm-hmm. I have found, you know, with integration tests, you know, coming from Flex and doing a lot of it there, then now into the front end development is that they tend to be fairly brittle. Um, so for instance, you know, you'll get a lot of false positives because your timing's not right. You need to increase your delays because, you know, maybe one of the servers, you know, you set it for two seconds and it takes four seconds to return a result. And so I think for, you know, getting in there and like testing for edge cases, I don't think you'll ever be able to eliminate the effectiveness of having a human actually go through that and actually kind of click through and try to find those, those weird edge cases. With that said, is I do think that it is useful for testing, you know, features before you throw them over the fence to QA. And so that's kind of been the workflow is that we rigorously test everything via unit test. 
And then we kind of have some high-level integration tests that kind of test the joints of the application and kind of where things connect. And that has just caught some things before we, you know, send it out to QA and allows us to, one, I would say at the front, just kind of save face and like, oh, well, this isn't going to work. Let's just fix this before, you know, we send it out and, and put it into kind of the public arena for, you know, stakeholders to see and stuff like that. So I, I think it's just a, a kind of a good mitigation step to take, but I don't think you'll ever truly replace, you know, human, you know, rigorous testing. I agree with that. Yep. Yeah, but you're 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 not selling it real well. So let me t- let me help. Uh, let me put some pressure on that because what you know you you put in this sort of well, it'd be nice. All right, all right. So uh, it'd be nice is not how you sell something, and that maybe maybe what you're saying is it's just not worth it. But I want to know why it can it be worth it. See, I uh, having a set of automated smoke tests. Here's what my dream is, because I know how much time I can calculate the amount of time I spend every time uh, we put out a new release, and I'm guarding against a regression, I have to go through and run all the main paths through all of the different pieces of software that we're shipping every time. And I can't afford to make sure that I have QA people doing that drudgery. So right now I'm doing it and it costs hours of my time and that's not free. So I need to know that I could actually write some tests that would run through those main scenarios and I would get the payback. Do you think it's there? Yes, absolutely. So I think definitely, and you can take this as far as you want, but where the real benefit is, is if you've ever sent something to QA that, you know, you kind of send it over the fence and you have this very long feedback loop of, you know, maybe in a day or um, if you're working with an offshore team, it's like, well, tomorrow I'll find out, you know, what's the state of this. And then, you know, a lot of times something will break and then you have to communicate like, oh, you know, this is actually how it was supposed to work or you've made some you know, flawed assumptions about the application is by being able to automate those tests on your local machine before you actually incur or you actually, you know, commence like that process of going through QA, which is a fairly long feedback loop, is you're essentially creating a very tight feedback loop locally to address those issues. And um, especially for me, being lazy, is I don't like to have to load up the browser, you know, click through, you know, 17 different times to like, oh, did I break anything is you can definitely cover, you know, a lot of like the low hanging fruit and a lot of the basic interactions very easily. So one is it saves you from having to do like the basic interactions, but it allows you to have a tighter feedback loop when something doesn't work, which I think is really important because I've had that disconnect with QA where it's like, I've just sent it, you know, I've submitted my ticket, my PR, and I'll find out tomorrow if it's going to pass or not. And so having that kind of 24-hour lag, being able to reduce that to minutes, I think is really valuable. Yeah, no, I think I could put that on the spreadsheet. I don't think I get anywhere telling my boss that I don't want to do it, but I can tell, I think I can put it on the spreadsheet and tell them what it costs to to have the kinds of failures that you're describing. So that's, that's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah, the feedback other, loops is is I think where it's at. The other thing that I've seen with a lot of these is that um, some businesses, if one of the main processes uh, or workflows doesn't work, I mean they're they're losing thousands of dollars every few minutes or few hours, and so just by having something that sort of guarantees that it works and works properly, and uh, you know with some of these you can actually sit there and watch it click through. It's just another layer that says, look, top to bottom, front to back, end to end, whatever you want to call it, 
this just works. And so you get that. The other thing I want to point out, I don't know if you guys have actually uh, worked QA. I did QA for six months at Mosey, and they refused to let us do this kind of scripting for the tests. And so, you know, Lucas was talking about a 24-hour turnaround, but uh, on some of the products that we were testing, it was it was two or three days to get through all of the test scripts, and we had a team in India that we were throwing it over the fence to to do a lot of the simpler testing. And so if we had been able to, to script a lot of these uh, systems, you know, we can at least then be comfortable with several of these processes just, you know, knowing that they're functional and they do their job and it can help us pinpoint the areas where we really need to go and dig in and make sure the stuff works. Why would they prevent QA from writing scripts? I, I haven't encountered that. I'm not going to say anything about my boss there. Never. <laughs> he, he was the reason I left. That's all I'm going to say about it. What's the dirt? Come on. Don't even, we'll refer to him as Bob. <laughs> code no, no, I get, I get that. But, I mean, because I see, I see QA teams trying to write uh, to automate their processes, and it's painful. It's painful to watch them do it. And I'm just so hopeful that Protractor would somehow change the story, and maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. That's why I'd, I'd certainly like to. I'd, I'd love to listen in on a show in which um, these issues were explored, because I know, you know, I know Julie knows how hard it is. She's not just somebody who stands up there and, pr- and tries to put, you know, yeah. paint it. Um, uh, with uh, rainbow colors. Yeah, the tools are still kind of hard. So anyway, um, we are way over our time. I'm going to push us toward picks. But yeah, I think Lucas also really well outlined uh, the benefits, especially for developers. So yeah, let's do picks. Lucas, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So my pick is I've been playing around with the new NG model options in AngularJS, and I found it to be really super helpful. And uh, I think it's a really neat kind of way to do some interesting things that previously was, was really hard to do in Angular, for instance, is how do I update the model on Blur instead of on KeyUp? It's super simple now. So if you haven't checked out NG model options, I give it a spin. Um, it's really cool. I'm really glad that they put it in. All right, Joe, what are your picks? So my pick is the same thing I picked on JavaScript Jabber, just because it's so awesome and epic, I have to pick it twice, which is the book Firefight by Brandon Sanderson just came out. I've been reading it every possible chance I get. Absolutely love it. Book two of his Reckoner series, which has just been my favorite. It was my favorite book of 2014, the Steelheart book, and I'm absolutely loving this book. I expect it to be my favorite book of 2015. So that's my pick is Firefight. Nice. We love Brandon Sanderson here. <laughs> yes, we do. He's excellent. All right, Ward, do you have a pick for us? Uh, can I say no? <laughs> you can say no. That's fine. I feel terrible, but I'm drawing a blank here. I'm trying to, you know, and and I can think of things that are funny, but I don't uh, no. All right. Um, I've got a quick pick. This is the same pick I had on JavaScript Jabber as well. It's called Desk Time. And uh, it, I've just decided I want to be a little bit more efficient in the way that I spend my time. Where I'm out doing contracts and stuff, you know, more time is more money. So, yeah, so I've been using it to keep track of how efficient and, you know, where I'm spending my time. And I'm really digging it so far. So it's not the same as, like, keeping track of time for clients. But uh, it tells you what apps you have open, you know, things like that. And so then I can identify the areas where I am 
spending time that I shouldn't be spending time on things. So anyway, you mean like you're always on Twitter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, that's me. Or world of Warcraft. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. So you happen to have world of Warcraft open for 80 hours this week. Perhaps you should tone it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so that's my pick and uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Oh, well, one more thing. Uh, Joe, do you have any ng-conf announcements? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. What a reiteration that in addition to the live stream, which is available for anybody to watch the ng-conf talks, we are also doing a special program called ng extended, which allows people to volunteer to hold a community event and get swag, t-shirts, et cetera, for the people attending and have them show up. And if you are interested in doing that and being a host for a community event to watch ng-conf with some like-minded Angularians, please get onto the site and there's a form to fill out. Contact us and we'll help you get that done. Also, I want to make a quick announcement about Friday night is game night. If you happen to be attending, plan on staying Friday night for lots of Awesome activities, my favorite of which, of course, is going to be the StarCraft II tournament, but also there'll be a Magic the Gathering tournament, a Foosball tournament, an Xbox tournament, and Super Smash Brothers on the Wii U. All with fantastic prizes. And last but not least, if you do not have a ticket and you happen to identify as female, we have some tickets reserved specifically for women in tech. If you're interested in that, in the show notes, I'll have contact information for Judy Twan. And she can help potentially get you a ticket to ng-conf. And that's it. Very cool. Definitely need more women in tech. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that's it. So uh, we'll wrap up and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today.